Ordinarily, we, um, we preach not only passages from the Bible, but we preach uh, through books of the Bible. And today we're coming to the last, to our last sermon in the epistle of James. And so we're in James 5, verses 19 and 20. And this is what it says, James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let me read that one more time since it's so short. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So I want to just reflect on three parts of this just in terms of clarifying and understanding and interpreting. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. James is not speaking here of an unbeliever who is brought to Christ. He's talking about a person who was a member of the church, who embraced the gospel and then wanders away from it and who then is won back to Christ. In that case, James wants us to know that the soul of the wanderer has been saved from death and many sins will be covered. So let's now look at those two phrases. We'll save his soul from death and then we'll cover a multitude of sins. If a person is involved in winning one, a wanderer back to Christ... They are saving his soul from death. And you might ask, but isn't it possible that the wanderer was actually a true believer and had just stumbled temporarily? Well, yes, that is possible. A person who is truly born again, truly renewed in his heart toward Christ, and then suffers a deep setback in his faith is often very difficult to discern the difference between that from a visible eye and a person who has professed Christ and joined the church though never really knowing Christ and then falls away. The two look very much the same. And the fact is we can't discern between these two because we can't see into people's hearts. But when a person wanders from Christ, contrary to the way many Christians think, James says that we should assume that his soul is headed for death. Why is this? It's because the Bible teaches us to assume that someone's true spiritual state is reflected in his present life and testimony. 
Ezekiel 18, 21 to 24 teaches us this. And also, we are more urgent about the condition of a person if we think this way. Some people just relax in the knowledge that this person once made a decision for Christ and trust that they will come back in the confidence that it's just a temporary slip up. But that's not what the Bible leads us to think and leads us to do, but to fervently pray and to do whatever we think that God would lead us to do to work towards winning the person back to Christ. But they not only will save his soul from death, they will also cover a multitude of sins. So whose sins get covered here? It seems that the sins here refer to the sins of the wanderer. That is, the wandering of the wanderer. And all that went into his wandering, those sins will be forgiving, forgiven. You see, when people wander from the truth, it grieves the spirit, but it also hurts other people. But when they are brought back, then all of those sins are forgiven and covered up by the blood of the Savior. So, so five lessons from this passage. Uh, and these are uh, most of which sort of underlie the, the point that James is making. Number one, some people wander from the truth. Now there are many references in the Bible to this. For instance, in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 2 Peter 2, 20 and 21. If, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. And there are many other passages which say similar things. This is why Jesus said that those who endure to the end will be saved in Matthew 24, 13. They are the ones Jesus refers to in Revelation 2 and 3 as those who overcome and therefore receive all the prizes of heaven. Now how does this square with the notion that God always finishes what he begins? Well, just because people claim to believe in Christ doesn't mean they actually do. Just because people seem to believe in Christ doesn't mean they actually do. Just because people are part of a church doesn't mean that they truly know Christ. When God actually gives a person true faith, then he does maintain it and protect it and sustain it. When a person abandons Christ, he's either temporarily stumbling and God will make sure he comes back, or he never truly knew Christ in the first place. 
Remember that Jesus talked about those who thought they were saved, but in the end, he said to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. He doesn't say, Depart from me, I don't know you anymore. Depart from me, I never knew you. You see, there's no contradiction between what James says here and the truth that you can't lose your salvation. Remember what John says in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. The second lesson that I'd like to talk about from this passage is that this verse helps us to see that shunning is not really biblical. Now, uh, I'll explain what shunning is in a moment, but let me start with this. The Bible says some pretty strong things about how to handle those who are in the church and yet turn away from Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 and 1 Timothy 1, 20 tell us to deliver such a one to Satan. 1 Corinthians 5.13 says to remove the wicked man from among you. First, uh, Titus 3.10 says to reject a factious man after a first and second warning. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 says to keep aloof from him. Romans 16.17 says turn away from him. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 1 Corinthians 5.9 say, do not associate with him or with them. And you see, because of these verses over the years, people have turned, to, uh, turned this into the practice of shunning. Which means that when a person is excluded from the church, you avoid him. You ignore him. You turn your back on him because he's wandered from Christ. But these verses, though they're very much in the Bible, aren't the whole story. As always, we need to interpret the pieces of Scripture in light of the whole. And in this case, in light of other verses, like 2 Corinthians 3.15, which says, Do not regard him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. And here in James 5, 19 to 20, where James urges us and inspires us about the great value of reclaiming wanderers. So not associating cannot mean not loving. And it cannot mean giving up on someone. You see, it's clear that all the guidance of the New Testament given to help us to know how to deal with a person in this situation teaches us that it's designed to win them back, not to punish them. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that is his sinful nature, and his, that his spirit may be saved. Titus 1.13, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. 
First Timothy 1.20, I've delivered them over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So you see, all of these efforts are redemptive and not punitive. They're not to be like punishments. So, how can we work to try to bring wanderers back to Christ? Well, certainly not by acting like everything's just fine, but also not by acting like these people are beyond hope or like we don't care about them anymore. So what can be done? Well, we can pray. We can assure them of our prayers. We can assure them of our love. We can tell them how much we miss them. We can humbly express concern for their eternal welfare. We can reason with them to the extent that they're willing to dialogue. We can lovingly and humbly plead with them to come back to Christ. And we can admonish them as a brother, as I read from 2 Thessalonians 3.15. You know, occasionally over the years, I've had calls from former members of the church who are facing big decisions. One, I, I can remember three distinctly. One, a man had become an elder in another church and he was so fed up with the rest of the session that he was on the verge of leaving that church altogether. Another had had an affair and was contemplating leaving his wife and family. Another had joined a church which was meeting in a public school and he was threatening to leave the church because he thought this was capitulating to the anti-Christian school system. And in each of these cases, I was given a platform to exhort as a brother to urge them to do what I felt like what was wise and godly. But of course, there are many cases in which I was not the right person to exhort someone. It seemed inevitable that if I did so, it would just make matters worse. Often, when people already know what you think and how you feel, it only hardens them if you keep telling them. So, it's not easy. Sometimes it takes a lot of wisdom. Sometimes it takes a lot of courage and boldness. Sometimes it takes a lot of self-control. Sometimes it takes a lot of humility. Sometimes it takes a lot of praying and waiting and trusting in the Lord. I think in almost every case though, if we seek the Lord, we can figure out something that we can do or say to help towards the person coming back to the Lord, even if it's just pray. Now the third thing I would like to get into this morning is something that's behind this notion of being separated from God is the danger of death. Eternal death. James says that if we bring someone back to Christ, we save his soul from death. Now this verse isn't referring to the death every person dies at the end of life. The only people who will be saved from that death are the few who will be at life when Jesus returns. 
Now, this death refers to what the Bible calls elsewhere the second death, the death which comes after death to those who don't have Christ. One day, you see, each one of us will appear before the living God and we will be judged. And whether we've wandered away from Christ or never come to him at all, if we die without Christ, at the end of our life, we will be judged. And the Bible doesn't paint a pretty picture of what this means. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, At the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 3, 12, he says, He will gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In Matthew 8, 11 and 12, he says, They will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, you are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And this is just a handful of the things Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. Eternal punishment is inevitably very unpopular today. But then again, also unpopular is the reality of physical death. But no matter how much people dislike the idea that they're going to die or that their loved ones are going to die, no matter how much they ignore it, it doesn't make death go away. And the same thing is true about eternal punishment. That day is coming. And what fools we are if we think that by hoping it's not true or by pretending it's not true, we can make it go away. Now there's nothing wrong with being disturbed by this idea, this concept of hell. It ought to be disturbing. The only question is, what our disturbance leads us to do? Does it lead us to fear? Repentance and faith, or does it lead us to disgust and ridicule and a hardened heart? Each one of us has to answer that question ourselves. The fourth lesson that I'd like to discuss is that for each one of us, eternal life is the most important thing in the world. There are many things in life, good things, valuable things, important things, our health, our family, our careers, our country, our intelligence, our relationships, our genes, our background, our education, our possessions, our ancestors, our experiences. And it's right that all these mean a lot to us. But there's one thing which is more important than all the rest combined. It is this, is your soul wandering from Christ or is your soul seeking Christ and clinging to Christ? The Bible teaches us that all we like sheep have wandered away, have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. This is our nature, is to 
is to wander away from God. And yet, God in His mercy draws people back to Himself. And through the cross, offers us all forgiveness for the sins and the rebellion and the straying that have been a part of our lives. There's a, one of our hymns says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Remember what the Lord said to Martha in Luke 10. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one is necessary. Mary, your sister, has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, Mary was seeking Jesus. She was sitting at his feet, listening to him, wanting to learn from him, while Martha was busy making preparations for the meal. And, and Martha was outraged that Mary was not helping her in the kitchen. And Jesus said this, You're anxious, Martha, about so many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good thing, and I will not take it away from her. You know, he said that to Martha, but he says it to us as well. And so let me just say it to you. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But only one thing is necessary. Some have chosen the good portion. And it will never be taken away from them. Now we care about our bodies. We care about our looks. And we care about our success. And we care about our reputation. We care about whether people like us or not. But do we care about our souls? Do we care about our eternity, the thing that's most important of all? Beyond all the stuff of our lives here on earth, there is something bigger, something transcendent, something supremely lovely and perfect and true, something supremely lovable. And cherishing Him, clinging to Him, remembering Him, worshiping Him, seeking Him, serving Him ought to be the first concern and the dominating priority in each one of our lives. And when a man looks at that one who is supremely lovable and beautiful and worthy, and instead of loving Him, turns away from him as if he's disgusting or ignores him as if he's irrelevant or curses him as if he's evil. That is the greatest sin and the essence of all sin. The heart that is right, you see, sees this ultimate beauty and loves it. Only when there is something very twisted in our minds and hearts can we look at that which is surpassingly beautiful and not love it.
But that's what sin is. Sin is a distortion, a deception, a poison that sums up what's wrong with the human race. In Jesus' parable of the sower, in Matthew 13, he talked about two factors which cause people to wander away from Christ. One factor, which he refers to as the seed that fell among the thorny soil, I mean the rocky soil, which typically happens early in a person's walk with Christ. One is persecution, peer pressure, human disapproval, as well as tribulation, which are the hardships and difficulties of life. The other, the seed, as in Jesus' words, the seed sown among the thorns, which usually happens later in a person's walk with Christ, is the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The burdens and concerns and sorrows of this life can overcome us. And the deceitfulness of riches can distract us and intoxicate us. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. There are other things as well. False ideas and false doctrines are mentioned several places in the scriptures. Satan doesn't really care what gets us away from Christ. It could be child trafficking or church ministry. As long as it moves us away from the way, the truth, and the life. Which Jesus called himself in John 14.6. So we must be watchful. And keep the main thing, the main thing. And the last thing is, if walking with Christ is the most important thing for each of us, it's also the most important thing for others, whether they know it or not, whether they want to admit it or not. And this reorients the way that we treat others and relate to others. The theme of James, as we've seen, is that our lives ought to match our profession of faith. And one of his main concerns about how our lives ought to back up our Christian faith is, has to do with caring for others, especially those who are in need. In 127, he urged his readers to care for widows and orphans. In 2, 1 to 6, he urged his readers to care for poor people who visit their church. In 2, 15 and 16, he ordered his readers to care for brothers and sisters in Christ who are poorly clothed or fed. In 5, 14 and 15, he urged the elders of the church to pray for those who are sick and ask them. Pray for those who are sick, period. And here now at the end of his epistle, he gives one more example of the needy who should be loved. Those who have wandered from the truth. 
You see, Jesus is the good shepherd to the point that he lays down his life for the sheep. As he himself says in John 10, 11. And you see, that means that Jesus has a heart for the wanderer. He even told a parable about a lost sheep who wandered off from the flock and how the good sh- the shepherd went after it, left the 99 and went after it and regained that sheep and put it around his neck and came back and they celebrated. And this depicted his love and his compassion for those among his flock who wander away. And that spirit of the good shepherd is what he is urging us all to have. Here in his final remarks, in his one epistle, James seeks to inspire us to be active in rescuing wanderers from the truth. So the question is not just, do we care about our souls? But do we care about the souls of others? Do we care about their eternity? Do we pray for them? Do we reach out to them? Or do we let our hearts grow hard? If you wandered from the faith, wouldn't you want someone to come after you and try to bring you back? I hope so. Now, let us sing together. Jesus sinners doth receive, which encapsulates this precious truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue sinners. Let us stand. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we all have strayed and gone our own way. And yet you tell us that there's a lamb and all our iniquities have been laid upon him. And we thank you, dear Lord, for him. We thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you that he suffered on that cross the punishment that we deserve for all our wanderings. And now, Lord, we confess before you that there's no place for us but you in your house. There's no home for us but in you. There's no father that we have besides you. For, oh Lord, you are the one who 
takes us, who loves us, who knows us and yet loves us in spite of it. And you forgive us and you adopt us and you nurture us. And we pray, dear Lord, that even now, by the power of your Spirit, you'd be at work in each heart here, drawing us to Jesus. Thank you now for the chance to come to the table that Jesus himself said we should celebrate, where we partake of his body and his blood in the form of bread and wine. Oh Lord, we thank you for this precious gift and this precious reminder of what he did for us upon the cross. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would be present here and that we would draw near to you even as you have extended yourself to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.